We're in Romans 3, picking up at verse 21. Uh, if you've been with us, you know the flow of Paul's argument in this section. Uh, and now we, we're in the, the really good news portion of his epistle to the Romans. And we'll pick up right there at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now you may remember last time that we looked at the two precious words that describe how we are saved. One of those was justification. The other one was redemption. Justification comes to us from the legal vernacular meaning to declare someone as righteous. Redemption comes from the language of commerce and means to pay a ransom that wins one's freedom. They both solve human problems of our guilt before heaven's court and the problem of our bondage to sin. But our next saving word, our focus for today, tells us what Jesus did to solve a human problem, not so much a human problem, as a God problem. Now, does God have problems? <laughs> he kind of does, and our big saving word for today tells you what God does to solve His problem and to save us from sin in the process. It is, of course, the word propitiation. This entire section of Romans is dealing with the great problem of how a person who has sinned can become right with a God who is holy. We sinners certainly have a problem which thankfully Jesus came to solve. But in doing so, our Savior had to deal with an additional related problem. What could be done that would permit His just and holy Father to forgive sinners and to be reconciled with fallen, rebellious creatures. God, you see, has a problem too. He has a uh, stunning, inexplicable love for fallen men and women. While His justice demands that they be condemned for their cosmic treason. So we obviously have a problem, but so too does God. Whose problem did the cross... Whose problem did the sacrifice of Jesus there solve? Well, you could answer both, and you would be correct. But the Lord's provision for us, I find, is far better understood than is His provision for the Father. The key to dealing with the Father's predicament is found in that word uh, propitiation. 
So let's break it down. Verse 25 says God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation or a propitiatory sacrifice in his blood, that is, through his death. Then the next phrase is the purpose clause. One would expect it to say, in order to relieve believers of their sin, but that is not what it says. What does it say? This was to demonstrate God's righteousness. Oh, so we know that the cross was all about demonstrating God's righteousness. But if I asked everybody coming in the door this morning, if I stopped you on your way in and said, why did Jesus Christ die on the cross? I'm guessing likely not a single one of us would have said in order to demonstrate God's righteousness. But it is in our text this morning, not just once, but twice. So there is something here for us to get that perhaps we have missed. There are two ways Paul says the cross demonstrated God's righteousness. The first has to do with his relationship to sin that had been previously committed. Now, this is something we don't think about, and I include myself in the we there, but there had been a great deal of sin committed before Jesus ever showed up to pay the penalty for that sin. How can God explain that? Previously, sins were not thoroughly dealt with, either by means of punishment or by means of atonement. Ha! Huh. More often, we read the Old Testament, and we get disturbed by the rough treatment of those who disobey, don't we? But Paul is telling us that the bigger mystery as we read the Old Testament is the Lord's kindness towards sinners for all those generations offended by God's kindness. Yeah, sure, such a thing can and often does offend us. Now, in the news, sometimes we hear about some criminal who does a terrible thing, and then a judge somewhere lets him off or hardly provides a sentence at all. Our sensibilities are offended by that. And yet here we have the supposedly perfect, holy judge of all the earth withholding judgment, withholding wrath upon people who clearly deserve it. So you think of King David, committed terrible sin, but God forgave him. How can that be? How can God forgive that kind of wickedness? David himself said that it was against God that he had sinned and done wickedly. John Piper asked us to imagine a plot to kill the president of our country, and that plot almost succeeds. Bombs blow up part of the White House, but the president manages to escape. The assassins are discovered, and the court finds them guilty, but their sentence is then suspended by a federal judge, and they are let go. What would that communicate to the world? Well, he suggests that it would communicate that the president's life and his governance of our nation, these things are cheap. We would be outraged by that. But that rather compares to the Lord forgiving David, doesn't it? How can this be? The Lord, by his grace, appears to despise his own glory. Well, Romans 3 points us to the cross as our answer to this. God was 
passing over. God was tolerating sins previously committed. Which choice makes God appear less than just? But in the coming of Jesus, in his death on the cross, we do come to realize that God has not been ignoring justice, but he has been postponing it. The cross actually reminds us of the impossibility of God passing over sin. His justice was delayed. Yes, it was. But God always knew he was going to do what he did in Jesus. The scriptures, you know, speak of Jesus as the lamb who was slain. When? Before the foundation of the world. So he came and he died in history, but in the mind of God, the sacrifice was always given. And now the cross provides a big aha. Say that with me. Aha. <laughs> Now we have some understanding of the ground for the Lord's extraordinary mercy. The cross demonstrates God's righteousness. It helps us to understand God's mercy for all those centuries that came before Christ. Then secondly, and more relevant to us, we will understand that the cross demonstrates God's righteousness in that it provides a salvation for sinners that is entirely consistent with God's holy character entirely consistent with his holy character. The gospel story is the product of God's wisdom to find a way for him to be both just and the justifier of believers in Christ. You see, the Father loves us before we are justified, but he cannot pardon us unless or until our debt has been paid and our sins have been punished. The gospel then is more complex than simply, God loved us a lot, so he forgave us. No, no. That would uphold God's love, but expose him as an unjust judge who let the cosmic treason of his creatures go unaddressed. There must be a way for God to be both loving and just. And that way is conveyed to us in the gospel, in the cross, in the idea of an atoning sacrifice. That is the way that we call propitiation. There is a verse in Psalm 85 that comes to my mind. It says, loving kindness and truth have met, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. These virtues of God, which seem at odds when relating to sinners, they meet at Calvary and are reconciled by the plan of God and the sacrifice of God. And so wonderfully, as we unwrap the mysteries of the gospel, our appreciation, <clears throat> I'm convinced of this, our appreciation of the love of God actually grows. We actually behold and come to comprehend how broad and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for us. And at the same time, we appreciate God's holiness and his antipathy to sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, so the cross does not merely tell us that God forgives it tells us the way in which he, we understand how he forgives. How can God forgive and still remain God? That is the question. The cross is the vindication of the character of God. The cross not only shows the love of God more gloriously than anything else, it shows his righteousness, his justice, his holiness. They are all to be seen shining together there. And if you have not seen them all, you have not seen the cross end quote. This is why we value hymns such as Gettys in Christ Alone, 
There we sing, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on Him was laid. Not many hymns, <laughs> not many hymns mention the wrath of God towards sin, but that understanding truly matters. Another hymn reflects on the justice of God and says, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied, propitiated, doesn't rhyme, but <laughs> that's you could put it, to look on Him and pardon me. And not just look on Him, but lay my sin upon Him and pour out the penalty which I deserved on our precious Lord. Now, with that understanding... Think we're ready, hope we're ready to explore more precisely the meaning of that word propitiate. To propitiate means to placate one's wrath or anger. The word itself presupposes that God is angry, as Paul has told us way back in chapter 1 that he is. Not that anger is intrinsic to who God is. I don't believe it's proper to refer to anger or wrath as an as a, a attribute of God. It is a response of God to human sin. Uh, you know, you meet people, and, and after a while being with them, you may discern that that's an angry man. You ever had that experience? That's a, you said that his anger is intrinsic to his nature. He's just become infected and, and, and angry. That's not the way it is with our God. Chapter 1, though, says that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God revealed that from heaven. Now we read that the righteousness of God has been revealed, and the second takes care of the first. But to do so, it must go through the cross where the penalty for our sin has been poured out on the Savior. It's not ignored, but fully paid. The wages of sin is what? Romans 6, 23, death. Normally, we would expect the sinner to pay that debt, but from Genesis to Revelation, we get to read in God's book of the deep magic, the mystery of sacrifices for sin. You know that story in Genesis 22 where Abraham takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah, and there God supplied the ram to die instead of Isaac. It happens in Egypt at the Passover when the lamb is slain to send death packing, and it happens for the Israelites in the desert as they are given the Day of Atonement. And uh, what happened on that day? Well, the priest would take a bull, a spotless bull, confess the sins of the people over the bull, and then kill it, because that is what our sin deserves. It is a picture, then, of propitiation. God is rightfully angry, compelled to, by justice to punish sin, but able to punish a substitute pour out his wrath on a sin-bearer, which enables the violator then to be pardoned and received again into the favor of God. See if that can sink in a little bit. James Boyce puts it like this. He says, propitiation means turning the wrath of God aside. In the biblical framework, this is never a case of mere humans appeasing the divine wrath, but rather of God Himself satisfying His wrath through the death of His own Son. In pagan rituals, 
Sacrifices were made by people trying to placate God. In Christianity, it is never humans who take the initiative or make the sacrifice. It is God himself who, out of his great love for sinners, provides the way by which his wrath against sin may be averted, end quote. You will all remember that uh, the Old Testament sacrifices were given by God. They were not invented by men. God takes care of his own wrath by his own means. 1 John 4, 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the what? The propitiation for our sins. So last time we were on these themes in Romans 3, I showed you Boyce's salvation triangle, and I want to go back to that today. At the time, we had not covered propitiation, so we want to go back there and look at that. Here's the picture uh, that may help us grasp what is conveyed by the saving words, justification, redemption, and propitiation. So get the diagram. God the Father is at the top. The bottom left represents Jesus with ourselves on the bottom right. Each of the three sides of the triangle represents one of the three salvation doctrines mentioned in Romans 3. The line at the bottom stands for redemption. It links Jesus with human sinners and describes what He does for us. He redeems us. He purchases us with His blood. We show that with an arrow pointing from Jesus to us. Okay, it's what He does for us. The line on the right is that of justification. Connects the Father with us, okay? God justifies us because of what Christ has done with regard to Him. So this diagram speaks to how God saves sinners, okay? And, uh, and you'll see, yeah, that uh, we contribute what? Nothing, yeah. We are saved. That is a passive verb, all right? We are the recipients. We are the beneficiaries of justification and redemption, both of which flow to us from the work of Jesus on our behalf. But we still have to talk about that line on the left, right? Connecting the Lord Jesus with God the Father, and that stands for propitiation. It is there because this is what God or Jesus did for us in relationship to God the Father. Jesus does it for us, of course, but more directly, He does it for the Father. As the sin bearer, as the one who takes the wrath of God, He enables God to be just, to be righteous as a judge, and still be the loving, saving justifier. So before we wrap up today, there's one more word for us to contemplate. That is the word blood. We've sung of it. Let's speak of it. Our passage says Jesus became a propitiation in his blood. Paul writes often about how we are saved through the blood of Christ. What is meant by that? Well, the whole mystery of redemption goes back to the Old Testament. The gospel is there from Genesis on. Blood sacrifices through the taking of animal life was part of worship starting really even before Abraham. 
God says this in Leviticus 17:11, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So you see, blood represents the laying down of the life. I think the New Living Translation is somewhat helpful. It says, the life of the body is in its blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. So from the Garden of Eden, <coughs> what did God say was the just consequence of our disobedience? He told Adam, eat the forbidden fruit and you will surely die. Uh, the wages of sin is death. That is what biblical justice requires. Therefore, when a human sins, he or she dies, or else the Lord must provide a substitute to die instead. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was to drive this principle home for the Lord's servants. Hebrews 12, 24, you have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood, which, next word's important, which what? Speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Remember Abel? The brother of Cain. Some of you, if you come into church with a cane, I may ask you, does your cane make you able? Uh-huh. <laughs> Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve. Abel was murdered by Cain. And Genesis says, the blood of Abel cries out, meaning it called for vengeance on his murderer. It was, the blood of Abel, talking blood. But the gospel points us to a different talking blood. The blood does not cry out for vengeance, but as that passage said, it cries out for pardon. As Hebrews 12, 24 says, it speaks of forgiveness. Charles Wesley wrote a wonderful hymn all about this speaking blood, and it says of Christ, He ever lives for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They, referring to the wounds, pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. And what do they say? Next verse of that hymn. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. You want to understand propitiation, get to know that hymn by Charles Wesley. Talking blood. We're saved by talking blood, the blood of Jesus. And what does that blood say? It says this sinful soul has been purchased, has been covered, has been liberated. The price has been paid. A life of infinite value has been given in his place, in her place. This blood speaks to the judge who sits on the throne and assures that judge that justice has been done. This blood speaks to the sinner who knows his guilt and assures him that his debt has been paid. This blood speaks to the devil and assures him. The devil wants to accuse and reminds the devil that he has no claim on this man or woman anymore. Praise God for talking blood and trust your soul. 
to its cleansing power. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. What did he do? He washed it white as snow. What can wash away my sin? Say it with me. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my part in this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. One more time. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So may God give us faith. May his spirit work in us a total confidence in this talking blood that can defend us with an irrefutable eloquence on the day of judgment. Make this your prayer. Make it your song. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Let's pray together. Lord, we've talked about some things today that are not particularly well grasped and understood by many of us, and we pray that you would break through our dullness and enable us to perceive these things with our comprehension, but even more so with our heart, that when we hear your invitation to come and put our trust in the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world on our behalf, that we would run to him and say, yes, Lord, here am I. Wash away my sin. Justify this sinner. Redeem me by your blood. And I will be yours forever. Lord, give us a total confidence and hope in this talking blood. And then propel us forward to be agents of your reconciliation that others might join with us in this glad announcement to the world that there is a propitiating Savior available to all who put their faith in Him. So we rejoice in the gospel. May we grasp it more deeply. May it affect our hearts more thoroughly. May it be the center of all that we are and have. We ask this in Christ's wonderful name and by His blood. Amen.